Made Visible is a podcast that gives a voice to people with invisible illnesses. There's no blueprint about how to live with an invisible illness or how to be there for someone who has one. We're here to help people feel less alone as they strive to create a normal life and to create an awareness of how we can be supportive of people who seem fine but aren't. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Made Visible. I'm your host, Harper Spiro, and I'm so happy you tuned in today. Today's episode is brought to you by Ouchie. Ouchie is a free app for iOS and Android that provides solutions for chronic pain management. Today's guest is someone who was diagnosed with an invisible illness months before her wedding. Talk about having to navigate a new life. I'm excited to share a conversation with Monique Gormassi, who was diagnosed with lupus and then became an advocate for lupus, recognizing the importance of sharing her story and helping others through this condition. So welcome, Monique. Hello. So happy to have you here. So tell us a little bit about who you are, where you're from, and what you do. So I am Monique. I am here as a lupus survivor, but I'm also a wife. I'm a momager to Mr. Chip, the doxy. I am a friend. I'm a daughter. Um, I used to say when people ask me, what do I do? I say that I'm surviving and I'm living um, now I say that I'm, I'm living purposely. Love that. So you're here because you have, you were diagnosed with lupus. When were you diagnosed and what was your reaction to that? So the best way to explain that is my diagnosis officially came in July of 2010, but I had been experiencing symptoms for about two and a half years. Um, which is sometimes pretty daunting and pretty normal for people living with an autoimmune disease. You can go months, years, um, and living in New York City, people will assume that you have the best care accessible to you and there's no need for you to walk around like a zombie. But that's what happened to me. And essentially, when I was diagnosed, it felt like almost like a burden had been lifted, but then it also raised a whole bunch of other questions because I didn't know anyone close to me living with lupus. I was not very familiar with it, the lifestyle of lupus, et cetera, et cetera. And um, the, the big thing that was the overarching issue was I was literally about two and a half months away from being married. And so we don't know if it was the stress that brought it on or if it was a culmination of this was just, it was building up over the months and years. But that really just weighed very heavily on me, the fact that I was going to start this new life, literally, and then start a new whole um, direction of my life with this diagnosis. Wow. So what is lupus for those people who don't know what it is? The best way that I can explain um, lupus in layman's terms, it is an autoimmune disease in which your body fights and attacks itself. The normal person will pick up a cold um, or a bug and their body is creating antibodies and the detectors that it needs to fight and block. And our body constantly sees our, itself as a foreign invader. So it's not just the cold or the bug, but you know the organs that we sometimes think least likely about that we're utilizing just to even blink our eyes, those are the organs that are being attacked. So with lupus, it is so specific to each person, and in that way, any organ at any given time can be the prime target in which your body is fighting. 
And unfortunately, um, because it is so heterogeneous, it's hard for my lupus to mimic what someone else's might be like and also then very hard to diagnose. So what symptoms did you have that brought you to a doctor and seeking treatment? I often think back to like what was the the thing that really made me acknowledge that there is an issue <laughs> and being a woman out of vanity, it was losing my hair. I know it seems really like basic, like what, you lost your hair and that's, no, that's really what it was. I knew that I had been sick. I knew that something was going on over the year and a half to two years. I had shortness of breath, um, extreme fatigue. I could feel pain down to my bones. I sometimes felt like I was nauseated, then other times I would feel like I'm extremely hot. I had always dealt with anemia, so I, I that was something that I was pretty aware of. Um, I had pains and, and strife in my body in places that I didn't, didn't normally feel. And at the time, I was 30, 29 years old, so um, I had been pretty active. I played a lot of sports, some of them competitively, particularly softball. So I thought, I'm going to attribute this to old sports injuries. And the thing that really made me say, like, you have an issue is me losing my hair. Not just the fevers, not like the heart palpitations or, you know, everything else that was going on. I had several emergency room visits. But when that started to happen... I was like, someone has to tell me what is going on. <laughs> so that's unfortunately um, the thing that made me go around to the doctors with the laundry list of things that had been happening and say, I need to get a diagnosis. And so were you immediately diagnosed with lupus? No, still I was not. Um, so at that time when my hair was falling out, I had been seeing a dermatologist off and on for years because I had lived with eczema my whole entire life and dealt with flares at times of life where, you know, they were, it was either strenuous or very high, highly intense. So I had been seeing my dermatologist about a year and a half before because I had a rash that broke out, had not dealt with a rash that extreme in quite some time, but I didn't know that it was lupus and they didn't give me a skin biopsy. So they'd been treating me with antibiotics and they'd been treating me with um, steroids, which if you're familiar with, a steroid regimen is very, very the basic of treatments for many autoimmune diseases. But typically you're getting a steroid when you go into an emergency room. They're kind of like, here, take this, go home. Um, so what that did was also suppress everything else that had been happening. And it was a passive way of me getting by for the few weeks and months. And I used atopic ointments. I'd, I'd been very familiar with steroid infusions. I'd done them over the years since I was probably like one years old. Um, that Why was were just, you doing that as a young kid? Because of the eczema, it was that aggressive. I had to do steroid treatment sometimes once a week, sometimes once a month, orally, um, infusions. And there was not very much on the market available in 1980 through the 90s. So that was kind of the thing that, that my parents had become familiar with, I had become familiar with. I literally went into the dermatologist and different doctors like, just give me some steroids and I'll be fine. Um, and unfortunately, that's what I did, you know, and it's in between the time of getting diagnosed. Wow. So what kind of treatment do you undergo now? What does that look like? What are the symptoms that you manage now? So I, I would like to preface this by saying that what you're seeing in front of you now, I'm probably like a walking modern miracle. Um, my treatment plan has changed over the past eight years. Right now, I have learned how to manage it, not just because of the outcome that I want, 
but I've learned how to manage it because of the lifestyle that I really want to have, not just based on the medication, but in utilizing everything available to me, whether that's from yoga to my diet to my faith, everything, my environment around me. And so that's some, that's just something that I wanted to say because I think we shoot for what is the treatment plan? What did you do? What are you taking? And for an autoimmune disease like this, it encompasses so many different things that you have to take into account to get to a place like this. And some of us are not that fortunate. So now my level of medication is significantly lower. I've been on as much as about 52 pills a day plus infusions and chemo, now I'm down to 12 pills. That's huge. We're so small. That's amazing. And in my world, that is huge, huge, huge. And again, the reason I have to say that is because this has spanned a few years where I was told if you come off of this medication, we can't guarantee what the outcome is going to be. Um, I had really aggressive cardiac and pericarditis and vasculitis and nephritis. And those were the things that really were becoming a deadly issue for me, to be quite frankly. So when I made decisions like, I don't want to take this medication, I'm not seeing the results that I want, it was not very hopeful for my doctors or my family members to hear that because what had shown was that if you're not on this medication, you will inevitably die. If you're not compliant, you will, you know what I mean? And so that can change for patients who are compliant and who are not. So getting to this point, it was a very, very, very long road. That's incredible. 12 a day from that much is so incredible. So what are the symptoms that you're dealing with on a day-to-day basis now? So now (laughs) I take the symptoms with a grain of salt. The past few months, I've been having terrible pain in my feet, (laughs) and we're trying to figure out exactly what that is. But I'm like, pain in the feet, at least I can put my feet down. I've had about two or three years where I couldn't even walk, you know, so that's just how I think about it. Um, Sometimes the migraines that I'm experiencing are aggressive. They're blinding, they're nauseating, they knock me out. I'm not even coherent sometimes. But then I say the flip side of it is before I couldn't even feel anything in my head, you know, or someone had to help me to even put together myself in a day. So I'm trying to balance it out. Um, Sometimes my diet is not the best. I may not have the best appetite. So that's something that I'm still working with. The fatigue, it, it fluctuates. But I would say overall, I would like to say that I'm feeling closer to myself in this past year than I have felt in quite some time. That's huge. I'm thrilled to I'm hear that. I'm hopeful about that. You sound very positive. You sound mm-hmm. very hopeful. Have you always been that person? Ugh, hell to the no. <laughs> <laughs> um, again, that's one of those things. You never know how a situation is going to change your perspective or just really help shape the person that you can become. Um, I'd always had a really A-type, high-driven personality and always really hard on myself. And if the the goals that I've set forward are not achieved, then I'm, I have to fall on the sword. That's just how I was raised. That's the person that I ended up becoming. And unfortunately, I think that just helped to allow the lupus to thrive even more so. And so when I was diagnosed... I didn't know what to do with it, and I just treated it like this is a cold. Like everything else in my life, I'm going to kick this. This is not going to, you know, 
I, I, I honestly went through a period of shame. I didn't tell anyone. When I got married, there were a handful of people in my circle that I trusted and my mom and dad and my husband trusted with this information. And we dealt like it was a CIA, you know, note and you had to only have a certain amount of information to get this information. So we didn't tell anyone. And that made it really, that made wedding planning stressful. That made the day stressful. Um, when I look back at the pictures, I just look at the person that was like in so much pain and just really pushing through every single moment. And um, unfortunately, having that set of close, I guess, closed mind mentality really did not allow me to reach out to people to ask for help, let them know what I needed help with. And I, every time the diagnosis got worse, I took that information and I internalized it. I didn't know how to deal with it. I didn't know how to let my husband know what I needed. And I got, I fell into extreme depression to the point where I, I made up my mind that I was ready to die. I had my will, you know, mentally figured out, literally written out. I, I was in such a bad state that I'm like, who wants to live like this? I'm spending more time in the hospital than out in the real world. And then when I'm not in the hospital, I'm spending it in a bed. I'm not able to be the wife to the this wonderful man that I've just married. I'm not able to be a companion. I'm not able to be a confidant. I'm not able to be out and about with you know the world. I just felt like I had no purpose. And I think when you're diagnosed and you feel like your identity is um, challenged, you you can lose hope. <laughs> so the maybe the cheerful person that you were and very um, thoughtful person that you were, that person is challenged. And so if you would have had, if you would have, if the Lupus Foundation would have said, you know, when I was diagnosed, we want Monique to come and have this talk with you, Harper, you would have probably gotten a monster coming in here. And I would have worn that continence over me and um, I would have just acted like the life was, was it. That was it. Yeah. So what shifted? I mean, how did you navigate from that sort of I don't want to be here anymore mode to what I'm seeing here today, which is this really vibrant, wonderful woman? What shifted that got you to realize, like, I can't be defined by this and I want to take control? Um, what shifted? There are so many things. I'm like just even thinking about it, getting uh, kind of emotional because um, I have a really great support system. And I didn't always treat them really well during that time because I was just bitter and angry, angry at everyone. And they really helped to pull me out of a place that I wanted to stay in. And some of us, when we're diagnosed with these rare diseases, these chronic illnesses, we make up our mind that this is what's going to be the situation. And we put out this very negative energy. And I didn't know how to speak well of myself or the situation, or plan. Like, I wouldn't even plan to do things. I'm not gonna plan to take a vacation, go anywhere, get my hair done, or get out of bed. Why, what's the point? But they would plan for me. They would come up with ideas. They would come to my bedside, and you know, they know that I like to read, so they would bring me a book, or they would read to me. Um, they would try to come up with creative things to do to really engage me, and pray with me. And I think, you know, one of the things that I'm always trying to talk to not just patients about, but family members about is creating a value system and encouraging your providers of the value system that you have so that they can work with that, whether it's your culture, your faith, your lifestyle, because 
that's going to be the area that's challenged. When you leave that doctor's office and you fall into this depression and you look at your medication, should I take it? And you think about, am I able to work or am I not able to work? Can I be a wife? Do I want to you know, get married or do I want to have kids? Or does my girlfriend or my boyfriend think this way about me? What are the things, what are the key tenants that you hold on to? And I had people in my life to help remind me of that when I had given up on all of that. So um, I would say I probably have like 5% <laughs> to do with this person that you're seeing here. It's really the circle and the team of people um, having my faith and believing in God and people believing in me and encouraging me to get here. That's huge. Love that. Support system is so important. So, so important. Yeah. And I think most of my guests have been really fortunate to have people, whether it's an individual person or a team, it's so important to have that. So in an article, you call yourself a lemonade maker. Tell us a little bit about what that means and why you decided to refer to yourself as that. Right. So my circle and I, we joke about this, that I've been doing this lemonade thing before Beyonce put out the album <laughs> Love Be to Death. She's my girl. No, but like I'm the one, founder. Yeah, of this. About, yeah. Right. So one day um, I was in the hospital and I'll never forget this. I was in the hospital and I had a nurse that had been attending to me for the past, you know, for a few weeks. And at this point, they were making up their mind on what type of um, psychosis medication to put me on. I mean, I was like, literally, I wasn't talking. I was unresponsive. You know, I was completely hooked up to everything. And a nurse came in and said to me one day, you're just so heavy. And this room is so heavy because of the place that you're in. And she's like, there has to be something, something that you're grateful for, something that you feel great about. You have a lot of people coming in here that love and support you. And she's like, choose to do something with that. And I remember like feeling this, like, who the hell does this woman think she is? She doesn't know me. She doesn't know what I'm going through. And the next day I was watching a commercial and I don't know what it was. And it said something about like lemonade and, you know, whatever. And I'm like, lemonade, taking something with this. And I just remember thinking like, what am I doing with all of these lemons that have been handed to me? I've, I have a laundry list of diagnoses and it seemed to be ongoing, but what am I doing with this? And that's when I decided, I think when I left the hospital and came home, I decided I'm gonna, I have to have a change and not just hear what I'm thinking about this, but how I'm feeling about this and how I'm allowing others to feel about this with me. So um, it was a really slow thing. I wasn't really on social media at that time, still grappling with it, still ashamed. How do I talk about it? Who do I talk to about it? Um, and I started just, my husband and I started having this, you know, being a lemonade maker. And when life hands you lemons, you make lemonade and yeah, you hear it. And the walk, the lupus walk was coming up in May. And it said very clearly in there, you know, name your team. And I just thought, the lemonade makers. And that's so cool. Since then. What a, what a long here. way from pre-wedding identifying that you were not going to tell a lot of people and you were part of the CIA and you were just sort of holding this information and then all of a sudden coming out doing this walk it's so cool that you had that shift and recognized that you didn't want to be defined by this and there was a way to get through it and manage it so what is a typical day like for you managing your health the typical day changes um there is no typical day 
And it has changed over my diagnosis. Before the typical day would be literally being able to turn over on one side versus lying on the right side the whole day. It graduated to a typical day. If I can just get out the bed and take my shower by myself today, if I can get down the stairs today, um, if I can make lunch for myself today. Now the typical day is writing something, getting out the house, or maybe if I have an appointment to get to, and I'm going to the appointment on my own. You know, before I would have two, three, four appointments and procedures, and I would never be by myself. I walked in here on my own, Harper. Before, that would not be possible. <laughs> so the the day of me being sitting with you by myself, someone not being over my shoulder, literally knocking on the door, are you okay? Do you need anything? Harper, was she okay? Those are things that have graduated. So um, a typical day for me right now, I'm really trying to make sure I don't overdo myself because there are some days where I'm feeling fantastic and then it catches up with me after like the second or third day, like you better slow your ass down because <laughs> you've got to pace yourself. Um, that also means like sticking to the things that have gotten me this far. Did I juice today? Not only did I take my medication, but did I take all the supplements and vitamins that maybe I, I was not so um, great with doing before, doing that now, you know, waking up in a place where before my feet hit the ground, I'm literally giving gratitude, giving thanks, you know, sending up my prayers. That might have been a really hard thing for me to even conceptualize or even want to do um, two, three years ago. So I've had this conversation with someone and then I did this post a few weeks ago about the pressure that we put on ourselves to do things, be places, be seen, so that we can show that we're having a great day or a typical day. And that's not always the case. Sometimes that day might just be opening up your eyes because that's really all my body can do right now. And I should feel like that is my typical day. Support for this podcast and the following message comes from Ouchie. Ouchie is a free app for iOS and Android that provides solutions for chronic pain management. It was developed by people living with chronic pain and the people who care for them. Even though over 120 million Americans suffer from chronic pain, you would never know it. Like with invisible illnesses, people with chronic pain don't always talk about their experiences because they don't want to be defined by their condition. Ouchie is the place where you don't have to be invisible or hurt alone. The app uses evidence-backed tools like cognitive behavioral therapy, pain tracking, community support, access to resources, and integration with clinicians to help people feel better faster. If you have chronic pain, celebrate the accomplishments in the everyday with Ouchie. Check out ouchie.com and download the Ouchie app to see for yourself. And make sure you share with them that you found the app through Made Visible. And now back to the show. You brought up the concept of relying on other people and having people be with you, getting you through each day physically and mentally. It's an interesting thing to think about the independence that you lose sometimes when you're managing a chronic illness. And I think it's one of those things where you have to sort of succumb to, I can't do this on my own. Right mentally and physically or either or and it can be really challenging to feel like you can't do this on your own you don't have the control so how do you navigate when you decide to rely on people and when you say this is about me this is my body this is right. my health i'm the decision maker right um i think 
the thing that I'm doing better now is acknowledging that I need help, not trying to be so prideful and do it all on my own. And what I have found is that a lot of patients dealing with chronic illnesses, we we don't know how to navigate asking for help, but we also don't know how to navigate saying, I'm okay. And so there's a fine balance of of that, not just for ourselves, but explaining that to your provider. Sometimes they would like to go on and do other procedures and other things, and you're like, well, that's not the direction I want to go in. That's not my course of treatment. So I think just towing that line, your support system is going to, let me take this back. Not everyone has a support system. Um, I've met some like mine who they're there all the time. Sometimes you're like, please fall back. And then there are some I've met, some people who I've met, and they're like, I, I wish that I had this. How do I get there? I, how do I engage people? And so there is a, a two different you know, ways that people can go with this. And so unfortunately, it can weigh on someone's diagnosis and then how they deal with their disease because you don't have that. You don't have that support system. You don't have someone to say, can I help you? Um, and one thing that I found even was that I had a lot of people that said, we'll be there, not just for you, but what was important was being there for my husband because I am a married person now. So the values changed. The single mentality that I had and, you know, it's about me, myself, and I, that had to change. But I had to grow into being this person and to becoming one with someone else really quickly. But how do I do that in this fishbowl with people that are like, no, you cannot do that by yourself. And no, if you don't pick up your phone quick enough, I'm calling you a hundred times and I'm calling your husband and I'm coming to your house. So you lose that sense of identity and then you lose that sense of space if you're in a relationship of your companion as well, because they're not only accountable to you now, they're accountable to all these other people. Um, so it's it can be challenging. That's a whole other conversation in dealing with relationships and marriages or wanting to be in relationships and how do you handle. But people don't speak to us about that. No one spoke to me about this before. So that's really what one area I'm hoping to grow in um, to provide that outreach to other individuals. But we have to learn how to navigate those different um, arenas and set expectations with people, family members, and and loved ones. So what advice would you give to someone who is navigating their own health issues and maybe are in a new relationship or a marriage or a few months out from marriage when they get their diagnosis? What tips would you provide someone like that? I would probably say um, to find whether it's a couple or support system that can mentor you or um, help walk you through the process. Someone that, as I like to say, that my husband can call that individual. We have a couple that, you know, they pray with us. They sit down and talk to us. Um, and I've, I've known the wife and husband for a really long time. And they were actually my mom and my dad's friends. But then they became like this, this light to my husband and I. My husband needed that person, not just me, because he's the one when everything is said and done, he has to deal with this monster (laughs) that turns into Fiona every now and again. So he needed someone to call and say, she's acting like a jerk. You know, I've got to go to this appointment. I don't even know what to do. And so in the vice versa, as a couple, we both needed those people to sit down and just be really honest with. And what questions do we have? Because outside of being trying to forge this new relationship, there's this other elephant in the room 
um, that we need to talk about and how do we deal with our finances or wanting to start a family or planning for um, tomorrow, whether it's with a home or engaging your families in decisions. And so I would say get a mentor, couple, um, see that therapy is important. It is. It, it's sometimes a dirty thing, and I'm really glad that we're removing the stigma for that, but I don't think it's happening quick enough for married couples. So married couples need to have therapy, not just before marriage, but during um, as often as you need to. And then also really relying on each other, giving each other that space to feel whatever it is that they might need to, because it's not like your typical relationship. So you're going to have to really forge that bond with one another. Yes, you have your individual lives, but trust each other and um, allow each other to make mistakes and allow each other to grow together. Give each other time to heal. Give each other time to be whatever it is you need to be because there are so many unpredictable things going on with living uh, with a diagnosis. So you're going to be unpredictable people. So um, I think those are probably the three things that I would... I would say I'm sure there's more, but <laughs> we've talked a lot about therapy on the podcast and how important I think it is, whether it's the right fit for you is to decide on your own. But I love that you bring up the sort of doing it together as a couple pre-marriage, you know, once you're already married, how important that is. You mentioned your faith and prayer a few times. Sure. Can you explain a little bit about what role that has played in your health and your life? Um, Huge. So I want to say that it's important for everyone to have something to hold on to. So I I call it my faith. Some people call it a higher power, higher being, yada, yada, yada. For me, it's my faith. It's my belief in God. And um, it stemmed, yes, from my family giving me this grounding, but now it's something personal to me. And I did have this um, bewildered area that I went through, where I'm like, don't talk to me about God. Don't talk to me about faith. If this is if this is what God, why would you know? So I had that time where it was like, look, if you're gonna come and bring me a Bible verse, please see yourself out the room because I don't want to hear anything about it right now. I don't want any words of encouragement. Don't tell me to hold on. Yada, all the different you know colloquial terms that we throw around. It has to be something that's so personal. So even when I went through that testing of my faith, that Job period. There's still something inside of me that was like, come on, seriously, are you, this is where, this is where we're at right now. And it just, you know, it would click every now and again, it would click. And it gave me a sense of feeling like maybe things aren't as bad. Maybe I do have something to look forward to. Maybe I can be a better wife. Maybe I can be a better friend. Maybe I can be a light to someone else. And it just, it just really helped me to be more grateful and I think that that's probably the thing that my faith has really helped me to be in a better place of or in is gratitude. So if there's anything that my faith has really helped me to just tap into more is just being a, in a more grateful place every single day, looking for the gratitude, looking for the good, looking for God, looking for blessings in whatever the day might be. And whoever that might be, just looking for that small sliver of it um, and not focusing so much on everything else that could be falling apart. I think that's really relatable. And I think that a lot of people on the show so far have talked a lot about meditation and how that's sort of their 
thing that they use their uh, vehicle for managing things and that it's their one thing that they do every day and stick with. So it's amazing that you have this prayer and practice that helps you get through this all and remain gracious towards what it is that you're dealing with. And it's so funny you say that because um, because I was always really highly competitive and athletic, that med- meditation aspect had not seemed so important before because it's like you have to be going you got to be doing you how much times are you swinging the bat how many laps did you do today how many miles did you do today so that area of creating a mindful space and respecting the silence had not always been something that I honored and if there's anything that has come out of this diagnosis I've had a lot of days lying on my back staring at the ceiling and at the walls I had to learn how to appreciate this body that I'm in and appreciate silence. And it helped to get me in a a place of learning how to meditate without all these different things and moving and being seen and, you know, posting or whatever it might be. Literally just being at one with what's going on here? What's going on in my heart? How am I feeling today? What, What am I thinking? And just really sitting down and processing that without jumping up and going because that's what society says you should be doing. What time are you supposed to be at the job? Or what time do you need to get on the train? Or what time is my flight? You know, just living by the constraints of time. And so literally almost some days being a vegetable, like I used to joke and say, I had to just be. And learning how to be helped me learn how to meditate and tap into that that space of what is happening with the inner man. So huge. So you're involved in advocacy work through the Lupus Foundation of America. Can you talk a little bit about your involvement and what made you get committed to them and the work that they do? I have to say that um, they probably brought me in (laughs) before I I acknowledge advocacy at all. Um, I first had my encounter with the Lupus Foundation of America by just an email I'd gotten from someone knowing that I had been diagnosed and they're like, there's a lupus walk coming up in a few weeks. Maybe you might be interested in meeting some other survivors. And I'm like, hell no, I don't want to meet any other survivors. No, I don't want to speak to any. Uh, again, like I, I didn't want to be associated with the disease. And she said, you might find it helpful and your family might find it helpful. And um, I registered. I, I literally went to the walk with my husband, my dog, my mom, and my dad. That was it. You know, we, it, there was no team. The CIA yeah, team. The CIA team. Um, and then we decided after that, after the walk, it just was so encouraging in the community. And then my brother came and met some folks and my, and, and just them feeling that they also had people that were hugging on them and educating them and informing them. That really helped to realize, for me to realize it was bigger than me. And I think that's what really wanted me why I really wanted to partner with the lupus foundation because it wasn't just about me personally what can I get from this or I need to just advocate for myself but learning on on a larger scale um, family members that are involved and and again the caretakers like your spouse your significant or insignificant other and then all the other people involved they need tools as well and if they don't have the tools and sometimes you don't thrive And then I started to realize all of the other avenues that the foundation had been creating in um, raising funds, significant funds. Like this year, we've been um, very critical in helping to raise over $115 million towards lupus research. And that's huge in a space where 
there's only been one drug approved in the last 50 years specifically for lupus. No way. Yes. Whoa, okay. So that's a whole other conversation. So, you know, I, I really started to learn the importance of why someone like myself being in a place of, of diagnosis, not only did I need a, a foundation to advocate for me, but why I needed to partner with them to help this mission go forward. And, you know, they're providing support in so many different ways with their programs and going to D.C. or to Albany and speaking to legislative members. Just this year, um, a lot of us went to D.C. and spoke to over 100 legislative members. Some of us could not physically be there, so we did it online. And those are the things that by yourself are really hard to do. But when you partner with other patient organizations and groups, you feel like you have a bigger purpose. And then you not only feel that you're fighting this disease, but you you do feel like you're empowered and you're thriving with the disease because you have other people mirroring some of the things you're going through. So what's it been like connecting with other people who have lupus after being the person that didn't really want to be connected to these people? (sighs) Ha, ha, the irony, right? I literally, I, I feel, I see myself in them. Um, I see myself in the women. I see myself in the children. I see myself as someone who is of a certain age and like the goals that I, I, I would like to have going forward. But I'm also realizing that there's that area that, you know, of, of need, um, being a person of color, I can't hide that when I walk into a room. And so when I happen to go to some of these science conferences or or just meeting with legislators and addressing the issues that women, people of color, people in the African diaspora happen to face in dealing with this disease, it it kind of is incumbent. I'm really beginning to feel like it's incumbent upon me because I, I've gained that access. So I have to be able to address these issues now, whereas before I was like, don't even talk to me about it. I'm realizing the things that re- related to health disparities and lack of health literacy that I even had. I'm realizing that how that affects someone thriving with this disease or their family members. And so I want to be able to make the information that I'm receiving attainable to these communities that don't have access to the same people that I've gained access to. And being that this is a disease that disproportionately affects people of color, this hands down, I have to be able to address that with the pharmaceutical companies and the legislators and the funders and the researchers. When they don't see someone like me, they're working on these treatment plans and they're working on these patient-related outcomes and reading, but it's like, have you accounted for someone like me? Does your data set include my numbers? You know, and I'm realizing it doesn't. So, you know, it's not just about me and I'm real I'm really realizing that it's not just about me anymore and I don't I'm not looking to get really anything out of this but I really just want to make sure that no one is left behind that it's not just having access to something but the highest quality of access and care that a patient that looks like me whether it's Asian African American or African or Caribbean that we have the highest access of care, no matter what community, no matter what zip code, or what continent you live in. And I'm really realizing that there is a gap in that. So here am I, send me. I love that you've made this your purpose. And I love that you've decided to become an advocate and to support the people that may not feel like they have the voice to advocate for themselves. And you're really 
making that decision that you want to share the knowledge that you have that you've gained over the years and teach other people to advocate for themselves too. Sure. So how can people learn more about you and connect with you and learn more about the Lupus Foundation of America? Sure. Well, of course, you can follow me on social media at Golden Mo. That's at Golden Mo on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook. I'm not the most active on Facebook just because I've got my own. I got my own Facebook qualms. And I'm also on LinkedIn as well. And of course, if anyone is interested in following me or just getting engaged with the organization, their Lupus Foundation of America is one of the organizations that I partner with Lupus Org at Lupus Org on Instagram and also on Twitter. And the Lupus Foundation of America has a platform called Lupus Connect, which is literally going online 24-7, available in over 96 countries that individuals like myself can also connect with you. So this is a huge community of advocates, of peer leaders that can connect with you. So I like to always say in connecting with me, you're also connecting with a larger community of peer leaders and advocates as well. Thank you for sharing your work and thank you for sharing your story with us here today. Thank you so much, Harper. I appreciate it. Thanks for tuning into Made Visible. We hope you learned about something new today. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a few minutes to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast on iTunes. We can't do this without your support. Visit madevisiblepodcast.com. Follow Made Visible Podcast on Instagram. Special thanks to the team who made this possible. Elise Bonebright, the audio editor. Gemma Leghorn, the assistant producer. Dylan Chenfeld for the intro music. And Krista Gray for the logo and design concepts.